You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. As you may know, I'm a big fan of taking saunas. They've got numerous health benefits, so they make you feel great. And they're not a bad place to just escape your kids for a bit of me time. So I'm super excited to announce that this season of Well and Good is brought to you by Found Space. These guys are an incredible infrared sauna company. And they are giving away one of their infrared saunas to our listeners. Yes, that's right. They're giving away a whole sauna. So listen along and find out how you can win. What should we be eating? Why should we be eating it? How should we be eating it? When should we be eating it? These are just some of the some of the nutrition questions that I think we all ask ourselves from time to time, and uh, today's guest helps to answer some of these questions. Mickey Willardin, she is, well, she's an absolute legend. She's an Auckland nutritionist who has a ton of experience helping people with customizing their diets to suit their own bodies as well as specific health goals. She's super knowledgeable in so many different aspects of nutrition. I feel like we managed to extract a lot out of her brain today. Uh, We go into so many different things. We talk about protein, supplements, weight loss, longevity, inflammation, carbs, fasting. There's a lot in this. The great thing about Mickey is that she speaks um, with really usable, actionable insight that anyone can take and implement into their own diet. She's got a rapidly growing following on online, on social media. It's pretty easy to see why. Also, just to mention, uh, I did mean what I said about sardines in this conversation. I love sardines, and I don't know why people have a huge problem with this. I mean, they're great, so just get off my back and enjoy the conversation. I feel like you're probably someone similar to myself that likes to experiment with different health practices, methods, regimes, different things. And so I'm interested to know, what's the strangest health practice that you've done for the betterment of your health, either physical or mental? I wouldn't say this is strange, but I was curious about the carnivore approach. Mm. So I convinced my husband, wasn't a hard sell, that we would just do meat. And literally though, Art, I got to two days. And doesn't that just speak to the psychological nature of food? Like it, it was nothing physiological yeah. because I love eating meat. But at the end of two days, I was about to go like climb the walls because I could not get vegetables. Really? Which is strange because you've done yeah, an I've, animal sort of I've, approach. I've, I've had a go with, a, with an animal-based diet for a month. Yeah. I agree. Like I did miss greens for the first little bit and then I kind of got into the groove of it but I totally know what you mean like and I don't know whether that was like my body saying hey Art you need some of these micronutrients in the green food like interesting you know eat this stuff or was it me psychologically being like you're conditioned to eating this food yes you want it because of that I think for me it was absolutely psychological Mm. and if I think nutritionally like all of the animal-based foods have most of the micronutrients that we need. And of course, they don't have those plant chemicals like the phytochemicals and they don't have the fibre. But physiologically speaking, we quote unquote should be fine. Mm. But for whatever reason, at the end of two days, I'm like, mate, I just want a salad. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, it yeah. is interesting, right? Yeah. Did you, um, were you going to be doing like eating organ meats and stuff like that? Yes. Yeah. I love liver. Liver's not that appealing, I find. it. Were you cooking it? How are you cooking it? Yeah, like just really quickly cook it with yeah. like um, Cajun or sumac or, you know, mm. and, and plenty of salt. Maybe and... I was doing it wrong. <laughs> Maybe you were. I mean, I was eating it raw. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, actually, I've heard people do that and I think that's a bit strange. Mm. And I never quite got that weird. And in fact, you started asking me what was the weirdest thing. Mm. And I probably haven't done anything too extreme because that was the extreme example I gave. But... I don't think I could do it raw, but actually it is like a superfood, you know? Like people put blueberries and goji berries and other exotic African fruits up as superfood, but I reckon organ meat is 100% that superfood. Yeah, I think so too. Like from what I understand of it, it has like pound for pound, it is the most nutrient-dense food that we know of. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Well, cool. That yeah. is, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a good one. I want to know, what is, like, as a broad sort of overview, what does good nutrition mean to you? To me, it is when you are able to regulate your blood sugar without 
thinking too much about it because I know you'll know, your listeners will likely know that underlying sort of all chronic disease states is, you know, that dysregulated blood sugar. So you eat enough carbohydrate to be able to do that and not more than that. Protein. I would say I'm probably very protein-centric in my nutrition approach because, well, that provides the building blocks for your musculoskeletal tissue. It helps produce hormones and enzymes, neurotransmitters, helps with satiety, making you feel good, and enough of that to do all of that. And then also enough fat for satiety and to maintain, you know, a healthy body weight with an abundance of vegetables. You know, that's okay. I'm yeah. definitely all about that. And I recognise, of course, going back to the animal-based nutrition, that not everyone can eat a lot of vegetables because of their sort of gut-related issues or something like that, but that's generally the approach that I take. Mm. But also realistic and make it tasty. Yeah, for sure, right. It's got to be something that people are actually going to want to adhere to. Yeah, oh, totally. Mm. Because ultimately that's what, a, you know, any good fat loss diet, if you like, and that's I do a lot of my work in that space. I mean, losing weight is easy, but you want to try and find an approach whereby when you embark on a weight loss approach, ideally it's some version of what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I like that. You also were talking about blood sugar mm. and you know, because they talk about, you know, a lot of the ailments that humans are susceptible to are related to inflammation. And so yeah. would your blood glucose level and like high blood glucose levels, would that be like the main nutritional component leading to inflammation? It would certainly be a big contributor. Mm. So there are loads of things that would, like people would argue that too much omega-6 fats which you find in, of course, nuts and canola oil, sunflower seed oils. oil, seed oils, yep. Mm. They would have a high omega-6 content, which would promote inflammation. However, it's an interesting one because it might actually be that it's the lack of omega-3 fatty acids that you find in salmon, mackerel, sardines. It's that imbalance between the two that might more be an issue. But, you know, that could be a big contributor to inflammation for some people. Gluten can be a big contributor to inflammation for a lot of people. The way they process our grains could also do it. But your sort of blood sugar control definitely promotes inflammation mm. in the body. So it's not the one thing, but it's certainly one of a few. And any food sensitivities, so foods which would otherwise be healthy for you, but if you are sensitive to them, then they're going to trigger an immune response that will promote inflammation. There's a bit to that, isn't there? Yeah. Try, trying to minimise your inflammation, there's a whole lot of different ways that it can kind of get to you, right? Yeah, there is. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's really difficult to sort of say this is the one diet that's going to suit everyone. And I think we're probably well familiar that you just can't say that mm. anymore. But I think in terms of overall approach is the more whole food that you eat, probably the better off you'll be in terms of that inflammatory response, I think, because most of the stuff that you see on the supermarket shelves is this combination of fat and starch and sugar and salt and then any combination of sort of flavours and additives and stuff. And it's that ultra-processed food. And I think that in supermarkets there might be 60% of the foods in there fall under that category. And they're not food, but they appear to be sort of food-like. Mm. And we're sold that that's the type of food that we should be basing our diets around, the health star rating, you know, six plus a day of grains and cereals and, and things like that. And whilst I'm, I think it's almost a bit idealistic to say shop the perimeter of the supermarket, because there are decent foods down the aisles, of course, as well, ideally you'd be trying to get as much of that stuff around the perimeter as you can in your diet. I mean, Whole Foods, everything just seems to be coming back to Whole Foods. Yeah, it does. And yeah. and I think the confusing thing for consumers right now is probably that manufacturers are on that bandwagon as well. So they're selling foods which should be, quote-unquote, healthy for us, like your paleo muffins and stuff like that, yet they might trigger the same inflammatory or blood sugar response that their traditional counterpart might, you know. You have a muffin, you have a paleo muffin, one contains sugar, the other contains dates. They're both actually going to promote those high blood sugars. So they're not necessarily better than the other. 
Right. So just as processed, healthier ingredient foods. Well, yeah. In fact, there was this paper looking at sort of cellular carbohydrate. So carbohydrate that's still in its natural sort of cellular wall. So it's intact. And your body has to process and break that down in order for that carbohydrate to be available. And naturally, if you think about that, it takes a lot more work, takes a lot more time and you're not going to get that same blood sugar response because that carb isn't immediately available. But then you've got your acellular carbohydrate, which is already ground down like your flour, and it takes no time to digest. And the paper sort of, you know, talked about those two concepts, but then also said, you know, a lot of these nut flours, a lot of these coconut and almond meal and stuff, they're just as processed, but they might not necessarily be carbohydrates. So you're getting this caloric load that you're not really having to work for, and that might not necessarily be so great either. That's fascinating, actually, because I have never really thought about that. And I've thought about, you know, doing lots of baking with almond meal or, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, flour alternatives, thinking, oh, cool, this isn't going to spike my blood glucose or spike me in any way. But, yeah, when you put it like that, essentially you're bypassing a lot of the digestion, right? Yeah, you are. Yeah, okay. Art, have you worn a continuous glucose monitor? I have, yeah. Yeah, same, mm. actually. And one of the biggest surprises that I got was I'd heard people talk about it before, but you get those protein bars, which – you know, they're completely processed. And I mean, but I quite enjoy a protein bar. Mm. I always have. And um, there was one- Chewy though, really chewy. Yeah, totally, totally. But I like, you know- I'm Like a good a, chew. Yeah, I do. Fair I'm enough. a texture person. Yeah. But there's this brand I love called No Cow and it's vegan, dairy-free, obviously vegan. It's organic and all the rest of it. And- It has two grams of net carbohydrate because it's got about 16 grams of a type of fiber in there instead of the carbohydrate. So whenever you look at the back of a label and it says that it's got this, I think it's isomalto oligosaccharide. Sorry, it's a very long word and I'm surprised I got it out actually. Nailed it. Because I'm not usually that good. Um, Theoretically, if it says two grams of net carbohydrate, you shouldn't be impacted by that fibre. But I was wearing a CGM and I had one of these bars and my glucose just shot up by four points. It was up to 11 because of this protein bar, whereas a quote-unquote normal range should be maybe between three and six or something like that. So that's another way where people might think they're doing themselves a favour by using these foods because they're vegan or low-carb or keto, but they still might have that, you know, negative response, I suppose. So what do people need to look out for then if they're choosing a product? I always tell people to first look at the ingredient list. And the thing that is first and foremost on the ingredient list is the thing that's in the highest quantity in that food. But if you're a macro counter, don't look at net carbs. Look at total carbohydrate. Because if you're choosing something based on its carbohydrate content and it's a product, then it's quite likely that that product will also, you know, if it's mimicking a traditional sort of muesli bar or whatever, then it's going to have some of these fibres and stuff in there, which theoretically shouldn't raise your blood sugar, but it could raise your blood sugar. So so again, it just comes back to that whole food thing, you know. Mm. There's nothing wrong with having foods like that in your diet, but just take care of the basics first, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, just with the um, continuous blood glucose monitor, I wore one for a couple of months, actually, and, and just to get some interesting insights. And one thing I found interesting was how much bananas spiked my blood glucose. Oh. Yeah. Which how I, disappointing for you. I know, <laughs> um, because I love bananas, yeah. and I, but I, you know, I didn't really want to spike my blood glucose. And then an interesting thing, thing happened actually just yesterday. My son, he, mm. he's two and a half, well, he's almost three. He hadn't really eaten much all day, and then it was about mid-afternoon, and he was like, he'd asked me you know, for a banana. And I said, yep, sure. He has a banana, and he's like, oh, can I have another one? And I was like, yeah, sure. So he has two bananas, mm. and... I've never seen him on such a high. Oh my it was it was amazing. You know, like people talk about, you know, when you give kids candy and sweets and whatever and they go crazy. Yeah. He was like that. Yeah. And he'd, all he'd had was bananas. 
So it can, it can have the same effect, right? Yeah, totally. And it is so individual as well. Mm. You know, and research shows that too. Like you might give one person a chocolate chip cookie and their blood sugar is just going to say, stay super stable. You might give it to someone else and it'll just absolutely spike them. Mm. I don't think that that is the only thing that you need to look for in terms of your food because there's nothing particularly healthy, obviously, about a cookie. But it just shows you that people respond differently. And, you know... Bananas for you and maybe your son, I'm not sure, in isolation isn't a best choice. So, mm. you know, next time put a dollop of like peanut butter on that banana might make a difference. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think the fact that he hadn't eaten all day was a contributor as well. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was, it was cool seeing it. I mean, it was interesting seeing it. You know? Yeah, totally. Now, I really want to talk about protein. I feel as though there has been a trend like globally, mm-hmm. to minimize our protein intake mm-hmm. for like nutritional health reasons. Yeah. Up until kind of recently, I feel like it's going the other way. Yeah. Do you think so? I think so, actually. Yeah. You know, if I think about back maybe 10 years ago, the real focus was on either carb or fat. Mm. So you were, you were either LCHF or you were just quote-unquote normal. Yeah. LCHF, low-carb, high-fat. Yeah, thank you, yeah. And there wasn't really much attention paid to protein, which is so interesting, right, because that actually is the one nutrient that has pretty much most of the micronutrients we need, has all of the building blocks and the amino acids that we need. It's an essential nutrient, and we get our energy from carbs and fat. And in fact, there will be people who will argue that you do not need carbohydrate, And what they mean is that you can produce 130 grams of glucose a day, which is sort of that uh, single carbohydrate sort of molecule. So therefore, we don't need it in our diet. But we can't get all of the essential amino acids, and that's why protein itself is an, an essential nutrient. But it's also expensive. There's a lot of politics around meat. There's so many politics around meat. I know, Art, and there is so much misinformation out there. And I'm no expert, and I certainly don't posit myself as one. But I follow people who do the research, who have written books, produced movies. I've followed and talked to some of the real scientists in the field about things like greenhouse gas emissions, about uh, the impact of raising cattle on the land and, and things like that. And what the true, I suppose, if you like, story is, is really different from what you hear out there in the media saying that we need to minimise our meat consumption, we need to minimise our carbon footprint. I'm not saying that that's not correct, that last one. But to blame it on the sort of meat industry, I think is not lazy, but it's just not looking into it a little deeper, I suppose. And I mean, a couple of days ago, there was a report saying that children eat too much meat, eggs, cheese, and they're obese and we need to do something about it. And it's like, as if children who are obese, who tend to be those in the lower socioeconomic demographic, as if they can afford to eat too much red meat, cheese, and eggs. You know, it's just crazy. Mm, The reality is those are expensive foods. They really are. Yeah. More recently, though, maybe it's because we are an ageing population. People are becoming more aware of how important it is to get a good protein amount to help support bone and muscle as we age. Mm. Because if you think about it, and I, I don't doubt you're big on things like health and longevity and living healthier, longer, and health span, like sort of what we do now really does influence how we age and what we're able to do when we're 80. And I think that's how ideally we'd all be thinking about our health. And how important is protein in that? It's essential because it is that building block of our muscles and more so our bones, you know, like our bones are maybe 50% protein and it's a dynamic. That's interesting. That's not something you really think about, is it? No, you hear about, and it is important, you know, calcium is absolutely important for bone, as is vitamin D and magnesium, but protein is essential. Protein and resistance training and load, load-bearing load exercise. But if you don't have enough protein, then you're losing bone mass and you're losing muscle mass. And those are the things which help keep you independent and strong and capable as you age. And, you know, you might be walking along the street now and you might take a misstep off the curb, and you're very quickly able to sort of correct yourself, and you don't even really think about it. You know, your brain almost doesn't register that that happens. 
But your muscles lose function as you age and your ligaments and your tendons lose that sort of elasticity and your bones are much more frailer. That sort of misstep off a curb when you're 75, that could lead to breaking an ankle and then being immobilised for two weeks. And studies have shown that you lose massive amounts of bone and muscle even within a two weeks of bed rest. And you just can't sort of recoup that, particularly at that age. But even at our age, you know, like there's so much focus on weight loss without that simultaneous focus on muscle building and muscle gain. And women especially, like I get so many DMs from women because I have a a program where it is an eight-week fat loss program and the primary focus is on protein and we talk a lot about resistance training and so many women say, oh, I just don't want to get bulky. Yeah. Like that would be impossible. And why is that impossible? We just don't have the hormonal profile that would mean that we would build muscle to the point that you would have to start freaking out that you would start looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger basically, you know. I heard Rob Wolf, you know, Rob Wolf. Yep. Yeah, I heard him say once that what we need to do is work our ass off to build as much muscle as possible and then fight like the devil to keep it mm. and do it till you die. That's a cool, good way to think about it. And in fact, that's kind of what I've been um, thinking more about recently because I've um, been looking at some figures on how much muscle mass we lose every year after the age of 50. It's like yes. over 1% or something like this. And so I've been thinking, right, I'm going to try and build as much muscle as my body is happy with me holding, Yeah. try and get up to as much as I can at age 50 and then just kind of hold on to as much of that as I can into yeah. my later years, you know? Yeah. And I think I think that's sort of like between 40 and 50, I think is a good age range to try and build up to, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, my thought on it. Yeah, because it's harder to build muscle as you age, you know? Mm. And the other thing with building muscle and maintaining it as we age, because I talk to a lot of women in my age group who are headed into sort of perimenopause and menopause, and actually having muscle mass helps reduce those menopausal symptoms as well. You know, there have been really clear studies showing that women who do resistance training, who hold on to muscle, they get a better experience, if you like, going through that menopausal transition. And so I feel like we need to, and it's getting better, and maybe it's just in my little bubble of the people who I follow and the awareness that my audience now has on this as well. But I feel like there's more of a message out there that it's more important to be strong and to be fit and capable than it is to be super slim. However, I will say something quite unpopular now. Oh, go for it. Yeah, that I'm not a big fan of the anti-diet culture. What's the anti-diet culture? It's health at any size. Yeah. And that you just need to make peace and accept your body and that chocolate cake and you'll be fine. Mm. And now I'm not saying that there is not merit in that message to a point, but if we want to be strong and fit and capable and independent as we age, you have to take care of your health. And I'm not saying that there aren't healthy people at every size, but I think it's incorrect to state that you can be healthy at any size mm. because the excess body fat promotes inflammation, blood sugars promote inflammation, the whole shebang. So that's the message that I come up against, particularly because I work in fat loss, you yeah. know. It's a touchy subject. <laughs> it is. These days, right? But yeah. it, like, But the reality is... Obesity is the number one thing that is leading to the ill health of the Western world, right? Yeah. You know, there's no way around that. And so, I mean, potentially the anti-diet scenario might be healthy mentally for some people, but the reality is it's not, being overweight is not healthy for you physically. No, and I feel like the, like, because I work with so many women who are in that space and I really want them to feel confident and capable as well, as much as people in the anti-diet culture space do as well. We we both want the same outcome. We want women to feel amazing and awesome and confident, but our methods are different. And as you say, like the most recent research I saw was that 93% of people in the US are metabolically unhealthy, leaving just 7% of them in a metabolically healthy state. That's insane. It is, right? It used to be 88% and now it's jumped to 93. Like things are not getting better. 
So the more that you care about that stuff, I think, the better you're able to sort of transition habits and behaviours to help work towards getting metabolically healthy. There's some big tasks. I know, There's right? There's some big tasks. I don't think I'm in at risk of sort of losing my job anytime soon. No. Let's just say. No, no. Um, back to protein. How yes. much protein should we be eating? Yeah. It's a great question because you often read or hear that, you know, we are eating too much protein. And the problem with that, Art, is that there's the comparison made between what you might be eating and what the recommended dietary intake suggests that you eat. Now, the RDI is set at 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight per day. And if you go and look at Ministry of Health documents, they will say that a woman needs 46 grams of protein and a man needs, I believe it's like 64 grams of protein a day. The RDI is set on absolute basic survival. It is how much protein do you need to live Whereas with what we're talking about with optimal ageing, maintaining muscle mass, thriving, the protein experts these days, and I've chatted to a number of them on my podcast as well, say that an absolute bare minimum might be 1.2, but people are much better off at 1.6 grams per kg body weight, and that is double the RDI. And if you recognise that you have some body fat to lose, if you are an incredibly active person, if you are older, if you are growing and are under the age of 20, then that might be up to 2 grams, 2.2, even 2.6. So we need quite a bit more than probably what we're getting. And I speak to people all the time and they're like, I eat a heap of protein. I have two eggs for breakfast. You know, I have chicken. With my lunch, I get like a tank salad, and then I have a steak at dinner. And just so people are sort of aware of what the protein count actually looks like, in that scenario, two eggs has about 15 grams of protein. And the chicken you get at any sort of fast food type place, even a salad place, you might get 50 to 80 grams of chicken, which would be about 10 to 14 grams of protein. And then a steak, you might make up for it there. You might get 25 grams of protein there. So is that like, I'm, I'm thinking like your, your average sized scotch fillet steak, say. Yeah. So 100 grams of cooked steak, which might be about 125 grams raw, which is tiny actually, mm. has 22 grams of protein. So, But your average sized steak might be 180 grams. That's a decent load actually. So you could get 30 grams of protein there. That's still not much, though, is it? No, it's You know, not. when you think about, so me, I'm 95 kg, I'm looking to do two grams of protein per kg, maybe more. That's like 190. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, I guess people who are bigger like you, like you could probably get away with maybe 150 grams. I know that so many people, anyone listening to this will be like, oh my gosh, that's so much. And where the disconnect for some lie is that they think when I say 100 grams of chicken, that that equates to 100 grams of protein. Mm. So that's different. And as you age, Art, the amount of protein you need at any one meal, that needs to increase to send that same signal to the brain to increase or to sort of turn on the switch to help promote muscle protein synthesis. Okay, so not only do you need to be eating more protein in, say, the day, but you probably need to be eating protein every meal. Every meal, yep. Right. Ideally, like a lot of the research has been done around sort of breakfast time and dinner time. Not a whole lot in lunch, actually. But if you're aiming for, say, 30 to 40 grams of protein at breakfast and the same-ish at dinner, and then I'd say, again, a similar amount at lunch, then you'd be doing pretty well. And of course, protein is the one component, but unless you're doing the resistance training, then you're not really getting the most bang for your buck in terms of bone and muscle health. But I mean, I mentioned muscle protein synthesis as the thing that's been researched most, and that doesn't even account for production of hormones or our neurotransmitters and all the other roles that protein has in the body, but that's often what is measured in studies and, and things like that. Mm. It's a lot. It is a lot, you know, and... um. And you're right. I was one of those people that would that would have. Well, actually, I was. I would normally fast for breakfast, and then I'd I'd have some protein with lunch, mm -hmm. and then for dinner, yeah, again, I'd have some animal meat. And I was thinking, cool, I'm probably having enough protein. And then only recently, a couple of months ago, I started then relooking at that mm. and thinking I'm going to have a bit more protein. So I've started having at least one 
protein smoothie per day, and I like pack this with protein. Nice. So it's about a hundred grams of protein per smoothie. Oh wow! I know. I'm like two, <laughs> oh. I'm like two to three eggs. Yeah, yeah. Two different types of protein powder, milk, peanut butter, or cashew butter. I try and just smash it in there. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's delicious. Yeah. yeah. But it's a good way to do it. And for me, I've found that I've been able to put on a bit of muscle, and I haven't yes. really changed anything else. You know, my training has been the same as it was before. And so Mm. I think that my body was craving more protein. I get that a lot from people. And a lot of people I speak to are much like you. Like, you know, there's a lot around fasting these days. And I think fasting is excellent and it's such a good therapeutic tool. And if it works from a fat loss perspective and you have all of your health indicators are fine, then that's awesome. But so many people I know fast and then end up eating all day or fatigued or don't have energy for, you know, their workouts or are really irritable. And so there are people who where fasting doesn't work and they are so surprised when I convince them to start eating breakfast that, one, they start losing weight and they just feel so much better. Because I used to be like that too. I used to fast throughout the morning but I would struggle to put on muscle mass. I'd struggle in my workouts. And as a runner, you know, you, you notice it. It's very apparent. You can't, you can't hide from that. And I would struggle with sleeping, actually, because when you just run too low on calories, it really impacts on your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. So, and, you know, I'm a nutritionist. You'd think that I would know this stuff. And I think a lot of it is trial and error because it sort of comes back to the individual and what's going to work mm. for them. But I do think that that protein load is important. So uh, people have a lot to gain from doing what you've just described and actually, you know, putting more protein in. Like there's very little that could go wrong with that. Sorry, just cutting in here. I'm just going to share a little quick message from our sponsor, Foundspace, and also fill you in on how you can win that sauna. Now, as a listener of Well and Good, you're probably someone who prioritizes your health and well-being. Well, have you ever tried an infrared sauna before or have you even considered having one in your own home? I have a sauna at my place and it's been the best investment in my health. I seriously think it has been. Now, since 2008, Foundspace has installed thousands of state-of-the-art low EMF infrared saunas across Australia and they now deliver and install anywhere in New Zealand. An infrared sauna is such a powerful health tool because it addresses multiple fundamental areas of your health in one session. They help you to de-stress and sleep well, manage your weight, find relief from chronic pain, and recover efficiently from workouts, plus heaps more. And they don't just sell you a sauna. The Foundspace sauna specialists are ready to chat about your health challenges and goals, help you find the perfect sauna for your home, and then integrate it into your routine to get the best results. To enter the chance to win your very own Foundspace sauna, just hit the link in the show notes. The show notes can be found in the description of this podcast on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. So go on, get entering. The competition is only open to New Zealand residents and entries close 31st of October, 2022. Now back to the chat. What are some other ways to get a bit of extra protein into your diet? What are some protein hacks? I like egg whites. Yeah. And that sounds really 1980s of me. It does. Yeah, I am a fan of the 80s though. Okay. Yeah. But particularly with fat loss, eggs are an amazing food. But to get the amount of protein you need from eggs, it does deliver quite a bit of fat with it as well. So generally speaking, I would suggest that from a fat loss approach, have two eggs and a cup of egg whites with that. So you're still getting the nutrients from the the yolk in two of the eggs, but you're also getting another 27 grams of protein and very few calories alongside it. Because actually, you know, ultimately you need to create a calorie deficit in order to lose body fat. And that's what people who do keto or go vegan or low carb, essentially their body, they're they're taking in less calories and their body is burning. So there's that deficit created. But anyway, egg whites is a definite hack. The protein smoothie and a really good protein smoothie with egg whites. And then you put ice and almond milk and maybe a little xanthan gum, and then you blitz it up and it's like a soft serve ice cream. Mm. You just double your protein at lunch. Like if you normally have a handful of chicken, have two. And a lot of people in my space are almost frightened to eat more then because in their head they're like, well, if I eat more at lunch, that's not going to change what I eat at dinner. That's not going to change my after-dinner behaviour. But it really does, you know. Like what you eat 
earlier in the day really impacts how you feel and how much you eat later in the day. 100%. I've noticed that big time. Okay, so I didn't think I was getting enough protein, right? And so I would, after dinner, always Mm -hmm. either have some paleo cereal or yogurt with a banana or something like that. Any th- the thing was I was always hungry. My body was craving mm. calories, mm. I think. Or well, probably craving protein. And so I'd try and get that after dinner. Whereas now, if I have enough protein during the day, after dinner, I'm fine. And yeah. I don't feel like dessert. I don't feel like anything. Yeah, and it's really like revelational, mm. if that's a word, for some now. people. It is now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, my goodness, I just am not hungry to snack and I don't want anything after dinner. Interesting on that, though, because I think there is something in us whereby you might eat all the protein in the world, but you still want a piece of dark chocolate. Mm, I think that's okay. And there are people, again, I get a lot of DMs, and I love it because I love interacting with people, and they're like, how do I curb my sweet craving? And I'm like, maybe you just have that piece of chocolate. Mm. Anyway, so yes, to go back to your question is protein hacks. Protein isn't convenient. And we have to make it convenient, and that takes preparation. So you do need to hard-boil eggs. You might want to poach chicken breast or roast chicken drumsticks. You might want to bake meatballs or put burger patties. Just keep them in your fridge because as soon as you sort of feel like something to snack on, which, I mean, yes, ideally you might not do that unless, of course, you're active and need the calories, but if you go into the fridge or the pantry, there's almost never that protein option there. Yeah, you're right. There's not. Yeah. So you have to sort of make it convenient for you. Best tech for me is just making heaps of dinner. Just yes. like overcooking. So then I've got great protein-rich leftovers. Yeah. Slow cooking as well. Yeah. Love that. Mm. I'm a real fan of, and it's incredibly expensive, but prosciutto. Oh, yum. Yum. Wrapped around a carrot or oh, around... A, around a carrot? <laughs> Yeah. Get out of here. I like my veg art. (laughs) Yeah. What a combination. I know. Um, But also, you know, around cheese as well. Prosciutto around cheese, that's all. Yeah. So I was recently in the States and the UK. In both places, you would get prosciutto wrapped around mozzarella sticks. They already did it for you. Oh, they did. A snack Mm, pack of eight. (laughs) It was brilliant. (laughs) Mickey's coming over. (laughs) Quick, wrap the cheese. Um, okay, protein. What about protein sources? Like, are, there, are some sources of protein better for us than other sources? Yes. The most bioavailable form of protein is animal protein. It has all of the essential amino acids we need for muscle protein synthesis. You can't get that from plant protein. And with plant protein, you do have to eat potentially 30% more protein more of that food, I'm sorry, in order to get the same potency of those amino acids. Because a lot of the plant protein, they also have the vegetable fibres or the legume fibres, which prevent your body from utilising that protein. Of course, having said that, though, the pea proteins, like New Zest, like any other pea protein, because the protein has been isolated from those vegetable fibres, they're fine in terms of their bioavailability. And they're actually as bioavailable. But animal protein definitely is, from a health perspective, going to give you more bang for your buck. Because it also has micronutrients as well. So it has the iron, the zinc, carnitine, it has creatine, it has cholesterol, it has the things that your body needs for all of its physiological processes. But I'm not suggesting that if you are vegetarian that you can't be healthy. Despite my very strong advocacy for animal protein, I'm really respectful of people's, you know, both health and their beliefs and how they want to eat. So as a vegetarian, obviously you've got eggs and you've got tofu. So tofu is actually great. And there's been a lot of, I think, misinformation against tofu over the years, which is probably more hyperbole than than anything else. Like tofu is actually a great sort of higher protein food for a plant-based or a vegetarian person. But you do need to supplement in addition to that, likely. Mm. If someone is following a plant-based diet, Mm. Or maybe they just they want to cut down on their meat consumption for yeah. whatever reason it is. Yeah, what are some of the best ways that they can increase their protein intake? Yeah, well, certainly a protein powder. Yeah. And actually most people could do with a protein powder regardless. It's not just the sort of domain of a gym 
person. If you are just exclusively plant-based, then I would suggest probably getting a couple of different powders because they will have slightly different amino acid profiles. So you might get a hemp seed one, you might have a rice and pea, and then you might have a pea exclusively. Tofu and tempeh are two of the best sources of protein for a plant-based individual. A lot of those impossible meats and those new fancy Bill Gates-style meats, and apparently he's doing avocados, evocados, I think they're called. Why would you do a fake avocado? Because they're very intensive in terms of the environment, apparently. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But that's a different discussion. I didn't mean to tangent off into that. So the, the original, the OGs in the vegan land that have been around since the 80s, that's probably where you want to get your protein from. But just to ensure you're getting your amino acid profile, you might want to also, in addition to that, with each meal, have an essential amino acid drink. And these sort of come in the form of either an unflavoured or a flavoured powder. It might look a little bit like a raspberry cordial or something like that. But if you have an essential amino acid drink along with your meal, then you actually will stimulate muscle protein synthesis to a greater extent. And research shows that as well. So if you have a low protein appetite and that might be an older person or just someone who doesn't eat a lot of food, like there are people like that out there, mm-hmm. or if you are vegan and you would struggle to meet your protein requirements, that can be actually a really good protein hack. Yeah, right. And so essential amino acids, what's the difference between essential amino acids and branch chain amino acids? Uh, yeah. So the branched chain are your leucine, isoleucine and valine. So they're three different amino acids. And in fact, the only one with any real sort of efficacy behind it is leucine, because that's the one that stimulates muscle protein synthesis. But the BCAAs often come together, and historically they've been studied for their for how valuable they might be at further enhancing muscle protein synthesis, for helping with recovery after a workout. So they, um, they were more of a gym-based supplement, right? They were, yep. they were. And um, the essential amino acid powder, though, it has all of the nine, and potentially it might even incorporate more because there are, in fact, like 20 amino acids. But we focus on the essential ones because the other 11 we can make ourselves. So an EAA is just a more complete amino acid drink. There is one place where the BCAAs might still be impactful, and that is post a long run or something. Research shows that they can be useful in terms of recovery and delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS. But outside of that, I mean, there's no reason actually why an EAA would not be just as good. I mean, it would be, they'd be equal. Mm, Okay. Mm. I've used essential amino acids on and off for a little while, and I've got the unflavoured powder. Oh, yeah. Um, Tastes terrible. Yeah, I was going to say, is that quite bitter? Oh, yeah, disgusting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sometimes I'll just, you know, I'll just down the hatch. Uh, (laughs) But I've also got this little, like, the flavour powder that I flavour it. I could flavour it myself. Sometimes I'll put it in a smoothie, but the risk with putting it in a smoothie is that you may ruin your smoothie. I was going to say, you could. I have the Balance Amino Complex product. It's very sweet. It's very flavoured, and I love it. It's sweetened with stevia, I think. But I have a sweet tooth, so that suits me really well. One thing I'm interested in is that that RDI, that recommended daily intake of mm. protein, which really shouldn't be a recommended daily intake. It should be a minimum yeah. daily intake, right? Why do you think that's so low? That is like such a good question, and no one has the answer Because like if all the nutritionists say it should be at least double, yeah. then surely it should be at least double. I wonder whether, Art, it's that the people who study and research protein, who are very vocal about how inadequate it is, they don't sit on the food policy boards which then set things like the RDIs. They are sort of public health nutrition people and they're experts maybe in other areas, but you've also got big food sitting on that same table Mm. and it's not in the best interests of Kellogg's or Nestle to say, yeah, we need more protein. Unless, of course, they've got their new protein drink coming out or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it's that. I think it is possibly political because it certainly isn't a health decision. Yeah, I think it's 100% political and economic. I think it is that big food. And it's a shame because, and that's just how the world currently works in terms of nutrition. It's sort of led 
by the states and then a lot of us, other countries, follow that, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's investment as well. Like in New Zealand, there's just no investment in nutrition. Like they haven't done a nutrition survey since 2008, 2009. So any of the data that tells us how Kiwis eat is well outdated. And I believe there's one sort of coming. But even just in terms of health, I mean, look at the last two years. Metabolic health has always been important and it's not more important now than it was. It's always important. Yet there's been nothing on that public health sort of message around how to keep us healthy in terms of our metabolic health. And I'm not saying that washing your hands isn't important, but looking after your metabolic health should be something that is talked about more. I agree. Supplements. Yes. I want to know. Yeah. What do you think are some supplements that people should consider using? Mm. So vitamin D, okay, absolutely. And in New Zealand, the UVB rays from the sun, which is where we would synthesize vitamin D from, they're just not strong enough during winter. Like you have to be outside at the high sun of the day for about 90 minutes to get what you need. And almost none of us have that. Yeah. So vitamin D is important. And you want to get a supplement that also has a vitamin K2 added to it. And there are local sort of varieties that have it. There's the Clinician's Sunshine Tablet. There's Be Pure. Yep. They have a dropper. Ultraceuticals is another one that has them both combined. But in New Zealand, and I believe Australia might be the same, is that there is this requirement that you cannot sell more than 1,000 international units as a capsule or a tablet. Oh, right. But like from a health perspective, Getting sort of four to five thousand international units is a much better idea. Like, so you just have to be taking four tablets, four or five tablets. Yeah. Yeah. Or you go on an overseas trip and you get something that has five thousand international units, or you order from iHerb, and yeah. you get like a from a cost-effective perspective. I always get um, totally slammed when I suggest you go offshore, but I also think about people's budgets as well. Yeah. So vitamin D is definitely one. Can you store vitamin D? Like, can you bank it over summer? And that's what we do, right. in fact. But the levels with which you're able to do that is never going to be enough to get you through that sort of mm. four or five months. And so that's the thing. So you do want to get as much as you can. And, you know, you get your blood taken and you get a vitamin D test. And if you look at the reference range that they provide saying what is sort of sufficient, that begins at 50, whereas that's only accounting really for bone health. And of course, vitamin D is important for bones, but in terms of your immune system, in terms of your sort of brain health and your mood, up around 100 to 120 is actually an optimal level. And particularly in light of our immunity, the research shows that with people who have really severe COVID outcomes or potentially suffer from long COVID, have a low vitamin D status. So getting what you can makes sense and you don't get a lot through your diet. Like it's very little, you know, sardines, liver, maybe egg yolks, but minimal. I mean, compared to other supplements, I feel like vitamin D is relatively inexpensive. It is, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then in New Zealand, actually, like we're quite low in selenium because our soil doesn't have a lot of selenium and you get that from seafood and, of course, Brazil nuts. And that's another one that really plays a massive role in helping us be resilient against illness and infection, and particularly COVID. Yeah. Omega-3s, sardines, salmon, mackerel, but a lot of people don't actually eat that. I love sardines. Same. I've just discovered this brand of sardines that's like in a round tin, oh, it's yeah. green, in olive oil, yes. and they're tiny little sardines, and they're really yum. They are delicious, and I've got that one at home. Oh, I so know. Good. I don't know the brand, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. My kids <laughs> love them too, which is great. Yeah, they're brilliant, right? And mm. it's just like if you put sardines with like olives and capers or something like that, like they really work well. Mm. But, you know, we don't have a good intake of omega-3s. And I believe in Japan, and you can get a blood test to measure the percent of omega-3s. There's something called the omega-3 index. And if you are sort of above, I believe it's 8%, then that's super amazing for your cardiovascular health and immunity and all of it. And that's where I believe sort of Japan sits. Whereas you're Because they eat so much fish. Yeah, they right? eat so much fish, right? And I wonder if they eat algae as well. 
because that's where the fish get their omega threes from. Okay. Yeah, in the states, I think it's around two or three percent. I can't imagine why New Zealand would be different from the other Western countries. Mm. So omega threes would be worthwhile doing as well. Different types of omega threes. Any, yeah. any that you recommend? Yeah, don't rely on flax oil or chia or anything vegetarian, because that omega three is a type of omega that our body has to convert to EPA and DHA. And we don't have a good conversion rate. I think we convert maybe 2%. Right. And EPA and DHA is what you'll get in a an omega-3 sourced, animal-sourced yeah. pill. Yeah. Right? Yep. And in fish. Yep. So in terms of supplements, Melrose is a good brand. Sanderson's is a good brand. A couple of years ago, there was research that indicated that a lot of the ones coming out of New Zealand were oxidised. And the one production place where they were all sort of all the brands were deriving their capsules from was not great. So there was a bit of question on on the New Zealand market. But as I understand, that's now been sort of resolved and it's fine. You can always test the rancidity by just like biting into an omega-3 capsule and, you know, what does that taste like? If it's just fishy, you'd expect it. If it's anything more than that, you might want to bin it. I wouldn't get mine from Chemist Warehouse, though. No, okay. Then, of course, if you are vegan or vegetarian, there's a brand called Nordic Naturals, which is brilliant, and they've got an algae supplement. Cool. Yeah, so you will see that there are oils that say there are high content of omega-3, but if it's not fish oil, it's not worth your money. Okay. I have experienced that rancidity before. You know, good practice is to keep your omega-3s in the fridge. Yes. And... I didn't, and I had a very old jar of tablets, oh. and they were just in the cupboard. Yeah. And I don't even know how long they were there for, but I had the pills, and I felt a little bit fishy. Oh, my God. And yeah. was doing some really, like, fishy burps that were just not – it was not sitting well with me. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was that. Was that. Yeah, that's a risk. What else? I think magnesium, actually, for most people – magnesium is used in over 300 processes in the body, and – We know that it really helps in those stress pathways. And living in this modern environment where you're exposed to environmental stress, you've got life, work, relationship, stress, and not in a bad or a good way, just it's life. And if you're an athlete as well, you know, if you do F45 four times a week, I'd also put you in that sort of athlete category. Then I would say getting a good magnesium. And how do you know what a good magnesium is? I get confused with magnesium because there's different types. There's like magnesium citrate, bisglycinate, malate. Like what do they mean? What are they for? How do you know? Yeah, great. So those three that you just mentioned are likely the most well-absorbed in addition to something called magnesium threonate as well. So those four are probably your best bet in terms of getting in and being absorbed by the body into your different systems, and particularly crossing that blood-brain barrier. Bisglycinate and threonate are likely the two that might do that, or that do do that. And then, of course, you've got your citrate, your magnesium chelate, so it's been sort of attached to an amino acid. That's also quite well absorbed as well. And then you've got your magnesium oxide, hydroxide. They are much better if you are blocked up and you need to get things moving. So if you're constipated, they're the ones to sort of take. And a sort of a general rule of thumb might be about 300 milligrams of elemental magnesium. And so when you look at the back of the packet, it might say that you've got magnesium citrate, 1,200 milligrams, underneath it, it will say elemental magnesium X amount. So you want to look at what that says. Okay. So if you were going to recommend one type of magnesium to the general population, yeah, does it matter or is there one that you'd recommend? So a brand I love is Ethical Nutrients and there's also Neutralife. So Ethical Nutrients is the off-label brand for another company called Metagenics and they're a practitioner-only label. So that's interesting. Yeah, I know. And you can get it very cheaply. And this is the one that I would buy from Chemist Warehouse, actually. Okay. There's a, a type called the Mega Magnesium, and it's also got taurine and B6 added. And particularly in a lot of the, with the people I work with who are going through perimenopause and menopause, that does help support GABA in the brain, which is a neurotransmitter that helps keep us calm. So it helps support that sort of production, those three together. But of course, it's useful for everyone. And the type of magnesium in that is a glycinate. 
Same with the Neutralife product. So they've got a, a magnesium and a collagen product. I also really like that one as well. And in fact, they've just released one and it's got passion flower in it and it's really useful for sleep and, and things like that. Nice. Those would be my main ones. And then my advice would be get blood tests. Okay. So, you know, once you hit your sort of mid-30s, getting into 40, you really want to know what your metabolic health looks like because you can't tell a lot of that stuff just by what you look like. Like I have athletes who are absolute lean beans, but their metabolic health is terrible because of the amount of sports nutrition and the amount of carbohydrate they've consumed, the amount of stress they've placed their body under, you know, and that's not something you can tell just by looking at someone. You know, you want to look at your metabolic health. You want to get your cholesterol panel. You want to look at your long-term sugar control, HbA1c, it's an okay marker. You want to look at your fasting glucose. Ideally, you'd also get your fasting insulin. Public health won't pay for that, though. You're going to have to pay for some of these. Mm. And then what does your full blood count look like? What does your liver enzymes look like? And then, of course, you've got your nutrient markers. And when you look at your nutrient markers, you can then determine what supplements might be useful. So you've got your B12 and your folate. You've got your zinc, your vitamin D. You've got your ferritin. And then you've got your iron panel. And there may be, you know, some others, but, and again, public health isn't going to pay for all of them either. But you want to get those numbers and know what those numbers are, and then you make a decision around what you might need to supplement. And for some of these markers, you get the reference range, and it tells you what where you sit within that reference range. And B12 is a great example of this, whereby your number is compared against not what is optimal, but what everyone else around you, you know, what their B12 is. So you go in and you are compared against an average of every other person that's gone in in that lab to get yeah, a... And I imagine a, that most probably when people are going in to get their blood sun, it's not because they're in peak health. Exactly that. Right. You know, and in New Zealand with B12, like the cutoff starts at 170. I have many clients who might be just scraping above 200 and no disrespect to their GP, but their GP's like, oh, you're with a normal range, it's sweet. Yeah. But actually, you know, you get B12 deficiency sort of symptoms can occur up to sort of a B12 level of 400. So I would get blood test done and I would talk to someone who knows about this stuff to make a good sort of recommendation around supplements. Mm. I mean, you can't really go wrong with a B12 supplement, to be honest. Right, okay. But it's when it comes to things like iron and potentially vitamin D. But there's little risk in the amounts that we've talked about supplementing with. But you can also then just waste your money by taking things you don't need. So do you think someone who is eating an omnivorous diet that they might need B12 as well? It could well do. Yeah, right. Yeah, because of course we talked about the amounts of food that people eat. Mm. And the people who look after their health are much more likely to take notice of messages to tell them to eat less meat and things yeah, like that. Good point. Yeah. One thing on getting your bloods done, it can be reasonably expensive. You know, if you want to get a full panel and get all the things done that you're mentioning, you're probably looking at, you know, if you don't want to do it yourself, probably like six or $700, right? I think more around 300 Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Last time I got them done, it was around about that. I kind of looked into it and I was like going to get heaps done. Maybe yeah. I was getting trying to get too many things done. Then, you know what I did? I went to my, I went to my GP. Yes. And I said, you know, I want to be proactive with my health and I want to get as many blood tests as I can that you think will be good markers for me to be proactive with my health and mm. to sort of to monitor. And then I was able to get a bunch of them for free through them. So that's, it depends. If you, if you can wrangle it through your doctor, then yeah. that's a great way to do it. I agree. And, you know, there are, most doctors out there love patients like you because they too want you to be proactive with your health. You know, when I chat to people I and I might suggest something that I'm not sure their doctor will be on board with, I often recommend that my client take their case to their doctor, maybe include even some research papers around something because then the doctor gets an opportunity to learn as well. I'm not saying that in a really condescending way, and no, I don't mean to, but general practitioners are experts in being general practitioners, you know. We talk about how they'll see someone for 15 minutes and then they're out the door and then they'll see someone else for 15 minutes. Yeah. Okay, imagine doing that all day. Oh. And then on top of that being told, like, you also need to keep up with all the current science that's being found out every single day. Like, it's impossible yeah. for someone like that, you know? Yeah. So I think we've got to cut them a bit of slack because they are doing their best job, but it's, like, impossible to know everything that there is to know and stay current. Absolutely. And the doctors I know that are current have completely stepped away from the model that you've just talked about. Right. So they're, they're doing a completely different type of medicine, which is not going to suit the public health system. 
unfortunately. One thing I want to ask you is around creatine. Yes. Do you think that could be a supplement that might be useful for most people? Thank you. Yes, 100%. You know, there's such good research now about creatine's role in bone health, in brain health, and neurological health just in general. And as a supplement to support optimal aging, it's now being sort of recognised it's pretty important for that. And, of course, we get creatine in our diet through red meat, but we probably don't get enough from that, plus the stuff that we generate, to be able to support sort of um, healthy bones and our brain as we age. And I know historically, you know, if you think creatine, you think rugby players back in the 90s. Bodybuilders. Yep, yep, totally. And the sort of loading protocol of, you know, 20 grams a day for five days and then you drop to five grams. But actually just getting a cheap creatine monohydrate, and that's pretty much most of the ones out there are that, and taking three grams a day, you'll saturate your cells after about 40 days. Five grams a day, you'll saturate them after about 28 days. And what you want to do is just start taking it and continue to take it. And that is one that I've added into my to what I take over the last 18 months. So would you just take three grams from the start or would you take five grams for a month and then drop it down to three grams? Doesn't matter, to be honest. And uh, people are a little bit apprehensive to take it because some people see a jump in the scales with their weight and it's water weight. However, that is transient. And I would say if you take a lower dose, you've got less likelihood of that sort of impacting. But actually, it's just water weight. But some for some people, it's uncomfortable. And I have actually talked to some women who, as they head into their sort of luteal phase of their cycle, they start to really notice that water retention. So for those women, we just suggest that actually, why not just come off it for two weeks and go back on it for the two weeks where it's not impacting negatively? Anything you can do is going to be better than not doing a thing. Okay, so we're coming to the end of this chat. Before you kind of mentioned about some people that you follow and stuff like that, are there any people that you recommend or that you think that might be useful for some of our listeners to follow from like a health perspective? Mm. You know, people that you look to that have done the research and can be trusted in their opinions on health matters. Yeah, great. So like, there are almost two camps of people I follow. There are people in the physique space because of the work that I do with weight loss, which is a lot of what I do. And then there are people in that sort of science nutrition space. And, of course, there are people across the spectrum too. But in the physique space, I love the work of sort of Lane Norton, Holly Baxter, Eric Helms. You probably know Eric. I'm going to speak with him on this podcast um, later, yeah. Brilliant. He's amazing. There's also people like Ben House. He's great as well. And then there are the likes of Peter Atia, there's Rhonda Patrick, Rob Wolf, Chris Cresser. He's an OG, really, in that yeah. paleo space. Those people sort of are the ones that I have immediately pop up in my Instagram feed, probably. But I also love, you know, my business coaches are actually overseas and they are Shante Cotfield and Jill Coleman and physical therapist and sort of fitness slash nutrition biz coach, if you like, yet provide really valuable information in that nutrition and health and movement space and another bunch of randoms. But I also, of course, I follow Andrew Huberman and listen to his podcasts. I don't believe everything he says because I've heard him say things incorrect a number of times. Oh, you really? <laughs> yeah. But that's okay. fine. I mean, hey, no one's ever right 100% of the time. No. But he's great, you know. He yeah. has a lot of awesome information. Sigma Nutrition, Danny Lennon. Great nutrition podcast. There will be so many more. No, that's great. I mean, that that's heaps. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really useful. I think it's good to identify people that you can look to that you know have done a lot of research because, like we said with you know GPs, you, you can't do it yourself. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Okay, so now what about if people are listening and they're like, hey, I want Mickey to help me. How do people find you? How do they follow you? And how do they become one of your clients? The best place probably is Instagram. So I'm on there on the daily, sharing information, and um, that's at Mickey Willardin. I've got a podcast as well. 
Great podcast. I love your podcast. Thank you, Art. I'd love to speak to you on my podcast, so we'll hopefully tee that up if you're available. That's Wikipedia, and that comes out weekly, and I'm about to start another part to that podcast where I just share nutrition information like I have done here, just sort of a bit of a solo cast. That'd be great. Ultimately, it's like this amazing podcast. You know, you just speak to experts. It's awesome. And then also I have a weekly email that comes out and people can go to my website, mickeywillardin.com. And then if you pop your name in a pop-up box, it comes up and you get a little protein guide download I thing. I going to say get a, get a protein bar. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would be amazing. And, um, and then to work with me one-on-one, you can find information on that on my website. I also have a meal plan subscription sort of service and a recipe access that people can sign up for because I love creating recipes and meal plans for people. And then I have my Mondays Matter program. And that is, has blown me away actually with how successful it has been in helping people sort of transform their eating behaviours and their habits and how they feel about themselves. And that's an eight-week fat loss sort of group program. And that's hitting the ground running again in September. So I just listed off a whole bunch of things. That's great. Yeah. That's what I wanted to know. And that's what people listening want to know as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your knowledge and um, this chat. Awesome. Art, thanks for having me. I feel super honoured to be here. All right. Until next time. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.